0: Welcome to the SLP Talk Show, real talk with Carrie about stuff that really matters.
1: Hey, it's Carrie, your fast-talking, speech-therapy-loving host. While you are driving, cleaning, exercising, or whatever it is you do while listening to podcasts, I'm going to be chatting about pediatric speech-therapy stuff. But I don't want our time together to feel like work or be boring. You already work enough, and you already have enough boring stuff to do in your life. So let's get going and have some fun. Hey, welcome to episode 22 of the SLP Talk Show. Uh, Jim, we have, you know, it's summer and we haven't exactly had uh, the consistency that we have no, no. wanted. So thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we are going to try to get back on track. Yes. But we are here for Absolutely. episode 22.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: today we are going to talk about strategies for supporting autistic toddlers and preschoolers.
0: Cool. That's that kinda, sounds good.
1: Yeah, that's kind of my—I um, don't know—one of my primary interests as an early intervention SLP. Mm-hmm. It's one of your interests because yeah. we have an autistic son. Right. So. Yeah. But anyways, um, before we hunker down, I don't know. Hunker. Does that? Do you ever <laughs> say a word and you think to yourself, "I'm not sure that's a real word." I'm not word? sure
0: I've heard that word <laughs> in like seven years.
1: <laughs> but it is a real word, isn't it? Uh, yes hunker down yeah i don't know hunker. we'll
0: have to look up the origin of that
1: <laughs> it just doesn't when i when i say it's, there's pro- I just, it's
0: probably derivation from some other language or it something. must be when yeah. we
1: before we hunker down, hunker, hunker down yeah sometimes you just say a word like three or four times in a row and it no hunker. longer sounds yeah like it doesn't a word. sound like a word by itself it definitely does not sound like an english word does it no hunker if you just said that word out of context i'm you're gonna, like say it again
0: i'm gonna hunker you <laughs> What? Hunker? Hunker?
1: No. Okay. Hunker. Um, so uh, I did look it up. I didn't look at like what, what language it came from, but I was curious what the actual definition was because I wanted to make sure it was a real word. And okay, so
0: there's some relevance here? You're just... There is. Okay.
1: Well, I don't know that it's relevant, but that's the <laughs> word I, I wanted to use was hunker. And as I was thinking, about, it, I'm like, God, I hope that's a real word. It means to apply oneself seriously to a task. Really? Yeah. So we're gonna hunker down. So before we hunker down. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we need to play a quick game of chump or champ. Okay. Are you ready?
0: I've heard those words in the last seven years.
1: You have heard chump or champ? Chump or champ. Yeah, but not hunker. Not hunker. Okay. All right. So four questions. Mm-hmm. we're gonna see if you can get four out of four. If you get them all, you're a champ. If you don't, you're ai
0: am gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hunker down and <laughs> Focus.
1: Focus. Here we go. Question number 1. What does the acronym DIY stand for?
0: Do it yourself. Ah,
1: ding ding ding. What is the name of Bill and Hillary Clinton's daughter?
0: Chelsea. Ding ding
1: ding. Who is the father of the actor Michael Douglas?
0: Kirk Douglas. Ding ding
1: ding. Last question. Let's see if you can do it. I know you're going to be able to. This was this is easy. These are easy ones for you. Which side is port and which is starboard on a boat?
0: Uh, port is left, starboard is right.
1: Well, how are you st- Wait, say it again?
0: Port is it- port is left. Oh, yeah. Starboard is right.
1: You're right. All right. Well, ding ding ding, you are a yeah. champ.
0: And I've never actually sailed, so.
1: Well, I would not have gotten that one. I
0: The only I, way the only way I remember it Yeah. is because port has four letters and left has four letters and right oh. has more than four so what
1: a wonderful yeah. uh study like A yeah. uh, mnemonic, mnemonic device. device i don't know if that's, that's, that's not a right mnemonic thing? device well but it's a study like it's skill or... a, yeah
0: it's a you know a way to remember
1: a way to remember things yeah i am not good with anything where there's only two options like i still and i know you're gonna be like i can't believe you're saying this you should see jim rolling his eyes right I now what, i still don't know the difference happening? between gloves and mittens <laughs>
0: I <laughs> feel like it confuses wow, me. Wow. We're going to put that out there, huh? <laughs> we
1: are. Um, because to me, they're the same. I mean, I get it. One has fingers, one doesn't. But they're things that cover your hands. They're like mittens. They're gloves. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know that it missed, matters. It's
0: a total mystery to me how you can't commit that <laughs> can't, to any sort of memory in your brain.
1: <laughs> and so trying to remember which side of a boat is port or starboard, I would never be able to because it's just two options. And I don't know. I have I have brain issues. So yeah. let's move on and talk about I something. I think we've established
0: your brain issues. <laughs>
1: move on and talk about something i actually know something about okay. how about that how about that Sounds um, good. So, yes, we are going to talk about autism strategies for early intervention providers who are working with autistic toddlers, or perhaps if you work in um, an education setting or clinic setting where you're working with three to five-year-olds with preschoolers. So, I really am most interested in the birth to five population with a pretty heavy interest in the birth to three population, Uh, but... As a pediatric speech-language pathologist, I have a pretty unique perspective when it comes to uh, supporting families of autistic children because, first of all, I am a professional who supports autistic children at my job, right. and that came first, right? I've been an SLP um, for 26 years, mm-hmm. so I support autistic children at my job, but I'm also a parent raising an autistic child at home right and aaron is 17 so i've been Mm -hmm. an slp and working with autistic children much longer than I've been a parent of an autistic child, but uh, it just gives me a pretty unique perspective, I think, as a speech language pathologist, as a professional speaker, as somebody who develops products and creates uh, coaching handouts for Mm -hmm. families. So anyways, uh, if you have been following along at all, or if you follow me on social media, you probably know a little bit about our story uh, related to Aaron and his diagnosis, Um, it was, Oh, after his second birthday, when he got a provisional diagnosis of autism from our local pediatrician, Uh, and that was in 2007, I believe. Aaron was born in 2004, so it was Mm -hmm. around, I can't remember exactly what month. Um, uh, it was, but back then autism was very much considered a tragedy. Uh, as an early intervention provider, when we would have like team meetings, we wouldn't even say the word autism. We would say like the A word, like, mm-hmm. oh, I had, to, I had yeah. to bring up the A word today with a family. So uh, we have come so far in our understanding uh, of autism. And so I just really wanted to talk a little bit uh, about kind of moving away from that whole medical model of uh, using therapy services to fix deficits, Mm -hmm. to uh, try to make autistic children um, mirror the development of neurotypical children, which doesn't work, right? Right, right. And so uh, I just, as a therapist, I have spent a lot of years really trying to understand what my role is. Uh, when the child is autistic or in early intervention. It's possible the child doesn't have a formal diagnosis, but uh, it is pretty clear to all of us that the child has uh, social learning differences. Okay, so whether they have a diagnosis of autism or not, uh, it's really important that we acknowledge our role as providers. And it isn't to go in and compare this child to the development of neurotypical children by using oh, like milestone checklist, mm-hmm. right? When we use standardized tests, those are going to inherently be biased uh, because all of them were normed on typically developing children. So it doesn't do us any good to uh, uh, look at this child's development through the lens of a neurotypical child. Right. And yet that's what we're forced to do, right? We have to mm-hmm. give standardized tests when we write our reports, we have to write outcomes and goals. And so um, something happened in 2020 Uh, It was called the pandemic, right? And uh, as a professional speaker who travels usually anywhere from, I'd say, 40 to 45 weeks a year, Mm -hmm. when that pandemic hit hard here in Missouri, we went on full lockdown. I don't know, it was the week of my birthday. So it was like the week of March 23rd. That week we went on full lockdown Mm -hmm. and I didn't travel for over... A year after right. that, it was like almost a year and a half that I didn't travel. So I was basically unemployed as a professional speaker, and so I had a lot of time on my hands. It was illegal to gather; we couldn't leave our house, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, they,
0: I remember they had you couldn't have more than like like ten people, yeah, in a place. And
1: I'm like, how are they going to monitor uh, that? But yeah,
0: <laughs> which I don't think they did, but right or right. could, but yeah. it was it was crazy.
1: It was crazy, and I look back and I'm like, it's just. I don't even know. I don't even know. So it wasn't that long long ago, uh, 2020, spring of 2020. So because I was home and didn't have to travel and was looking for something to do, I had had this idea to write a program for early intervention providers on supporting autistic children. And so I did it. And so I just thought I'd spend a little bit of time today uh, talking about this program. It's called the Learning to Learn Program, and uh, it is uh, a manual. I mean, it's a, a spiral-bound book, and it comes with an assessment. Well, but you, as well. you, you
0: had a previous version to this, you're right, so it's you're not right. like you just sat down no, and decided right. to write this book. This was
1: sometimes I forget about that for many there was years. Other I, versions. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I had an assessment tool. So like right. this is the current assessment. I'm showing it to Jim now, mm-hmm. um, and and many years ago i mean probably like
0: yeah you've eight had or this ten you've years been working ago, on this for well over a decade
1: but it was just the assessment and it just right, looked right. at like developmental differences right. and strengths and it just kind of right. but it looked at these five foundation skills that i'm going to talk to you a little bit about today and so i had this assessment tool and everybody who was using it kept saying man it would be amazing if we had like therapy goals and right. I- intervention strategies yeah. to go with it. And so for years and years, I was like, ooh, that'd be a good idea. Ooh, that'd be a good idea. But I never had the time because I'm always on the right.
0: road. And then so you put it in more of a book format. I
1: did. I did. I actually went through and um, spent several months doing a lot of research. And um, obviously research from you know uh, peer-reviewed uh, published journal articles. But I also spent a lot of time listening to autistic adults, Mm -hmm. because they are the true experts on autism. And so I spent an awful lot of time really uh, listening and uh, trying to understand the neurodiversity movement and trying to understand um, how we as therapists can move away from the medical model of disability and and start uh, recognizing that we as a society uh, have a role in accepting neurodivergent people, Mm -hmm. but in also providing them... Um, supports so that they can be successful and so they can have a high quality of life uh, in this world that really wasn't designed for um, neurodivergent people, you know. So um, anyways, uh, the Learning to Learn program is what this is called, and this entire program is not for fixing deficits it's not for um, using behavior management chart you know charts like sticker mm-hmm. charts and right. things like that to try to um, re- you know reduce these behaviors and make the child act more neurotypical or
0: force any kind of compliance
1: exactly you took the words right out of my mouth it is absolutely not about establishing compliance right mm-hmm. because a lot of times and gosh I think back to um you know all the times I probably wrote in progress notes you know many years ago child is non-compliant Child refuses to participate in, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, or Z activity. Right. So basically what happens when we use terms like non-compliant or refuses or is defiant, we use terms like that. Basically what we're doing is blaming the child and saying, well, you're choosing not to do this. So right. this is a behavior right. problem. Instead of trying to look at the behavior and say, well, that behavior is a form of communication. And I am sure I've said that before on the, on, the, on this podcast, but it's worth saying again that when you work with young children it's important to always remember that behavior is often the most developed form of communication that our children have. Right. Right. If you're a speech language pathologist and you work in early intervention, um, every child that's getting referred to you has difficulty with communication. Right. Uh, and so we have to acknowledge that uh, those behaviors are the highest form of communication. And so we're not uh, trying to establish compliance, trying to um, uh, teach isolated skills out of context. Gosh, I think how we used to do that as therapists, like, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, we need him to be able to. Um, you know, maybe uh, match uh, these puzzle pieces, you know, to the puzzle board. I mean, that's great if he's interested in puzzles, but to just do it as an isolated skill or, oh, we need him to stack five blocks or I need him to string three beads. And, you know, these are like little milestone things that we can check off a milestone list, but in the grand scheme of things, who cares, right? right? There needs to be a functional reason why we're assessing. Can
0: can I be honest though? I mean, when I was, I would sit in with some of these, IEP meetings
1: uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. and some of the goals, and I'd be like, "So what? why?
1: Right? So what? Who yeah. cares? Yeah, like he goals... can string
0: three beads together. whoop do. doo why, why does that matter?
1: Well, do you remember in? Um, I have
0: larger concerns other y- than yeah, that. Yeah,
1: when Aaron know? was in elementary school, and you were at this IEP meeting, um, and I remember, I remember the exact classroom. I remember sitting around that little child-sized table, and um, one of the therapists was telling us that she was concerned that Aaron couldn't uh, complete block patterns like she would give him a card that had a block design and then would give him actual blocks and he was supposed to He so if it was like three blocks on the bottom yeah and like one block on top or maybe two blocks and one block right he was supposed to do that and she said he refused to participate so she couldn't so you know right. it brought his standardized test score down because he refused he to participate he probably wanted
0: to play with the blocks the way he liked to play with well the that's blocks. it but
1: there was no except you know there was no right. uh, uh, ability to uh, really follow his lead so we kept looking at goals that we thought he needed to Master before they were willing to move on to other skills and so I remember them just being so concerned about his lack of progress. Do you remember I'm talking Mm -hmm. about that with us all the time his lack of progress, lack of progress and I mean our biggest thing was gosh we wished he could communicate more you know and I'm a speech language pathologist and communication was our biggest concern but again they were looking at milestone checklists for all these skills but not
0: actually checking in with us to see what we really valued for him and what we
1: were concerned about because
0: and... yeah because i don't care if he can string 3 beads together
1: right right it, it just doesn't seem to matter. And I understand, I'm a therapist, I understand the importance of fine motor skills, but I mean, they were also doing things like Aaron could, I, I think back to Aaron could label. You could show him pictures, like flashcards of sure. objects and yeah. he could label. So they would have a goal for, you know, labeling vocabulary. And my whole thing is he can label it, but he doesn't ever use those words in conversation. So that's where there's a disconnect right. between working on isolated skills out of context, which is what therapy historically has been about, uh, versus learning skills that are functional functional, meaningful, relevant, right?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, labeling was his, that's how he learned how to read. Yeah. Because he just, he could look at a word and remember it, remember what it sounded like, and then he could read it. Yeah. It wasn't, he never sounded anything out.
1: No, he never really learned to decode um, the way typically developing children learn to read. But anyway, so I wrote this book, uh, this program, if you will, and it's not really looking at the norm. It has an informal assessment that goes with it, but it's not looking at what typically developing children do or how this child compares to typically developing children. What it's really looking at is how does this child, this autistic child, learn how mm-hmm. do they how, how do they learn through interactions with other people right and so uh, the learning to learn program uh, it, like I said it has an assessment it has therapy strategies it has uh, ideas for goal writing uh, right. that are functional that are uh, strengths based that are neurodiversity affirming not based on deficits identified on standardized tests
0: so you wouldn't necessarily call it a goal bank, but you would say ideas that help right, you formulate right. your goals, and right? And you
1: know, because we've been working together for a long time and uh, we're married. So you have heard me say this over and over that I'm not a big fan of goal banks in general because it doesn't really allow us to look at individual, you know, the right. individual, yeah, to individualize those goals. Every kid's different. Every kid is different, and I just don't want to get to where every plan of care has the same goals because right. we get stuck and on...
0: Exactly what you would have if yeah. you put yeah. that out there.
1: Well, yeah, and if we look at standardized tests, it's easier to use a bank of goals because mm-hmm. you, want, you know exactly which skill set, you know, you're right. going to be working on. But with our um, autistic little ones, it's really important that we are considering their strengths, that we're considering their interests, right, right? those intrinsic right. motivational uh, things. Uh, we really have to consider all of that. And it's also extremely important that we are looking at the relationship between the child and their primary caregivers, right? If you work in early intervention, in the birth to three world, uh, caregiver coaching, right? Partnering Mm -hmm. with parents and caregivers is where it is all at. at, at. Um, And so this isn't a program that's like a cookbook that says do this, then do this, then do this. But what this program does provide is a framework Mm -hmm. for supporting autistic toddlers and preschoolers through relationship-based learning. And that's one of my favorite phrases. I use it all the time. Don't right. I, Jim. Yep. Um, it's about relationships, uh, and it's about strengths, and it's about building off the child's interests and mm-hmm. the things that they are good at. Not looking at the things that they at the not, deficits. At the deficits, right? That's the medical model that right. says, "Oh, you can't string three beads. Then, gosh darn it, we're going to spend yeah, as much let's, time let's as spend we can. half a semester on right. stringing three beads, beads together." Right. Instead of looking at at functional um, goals, and okay. so uh, I just thought real quickly, I would just outline the five foundation skills that are uh, part of the Learning to Learn program. And I have uh, one of the the books here, so I'm just going to kind of use it to kind of guide our conversation here. But the first uh, foundation skill uh, that we talk about is uh, nonverbal imitation. And Mm -hmm. in very young children, I mean, in early intervention, we're often working with children 15 months old, 18 months old, you know, oftentimes they're under age two. And so it's really important um, that we're able to explain to parents and caregivers, their primary goal is usually I want them to talk, right? Right. That's almost always what parents say. Uh, And uh, so we need to be able to explain that there are foundation skills that support learning and development uh, that are going to precede any kind of speech goals, right? Sure. We're not gonna we're not gonna yeah. start with speech goals. So, um, what I did is I just thought I'd talk uh, about two quick strategies for each of these five foundation skills. So, when okay. we work on nonverbal imitation skills, uh, one of the the strategies that is outlined in this program is to teach imitation in the context of whatever the child is currently doing. Mm-hmm. So, it's not about um, oh, hey, put that whatever down, maybe he, you know, whatever, lining up his Hot Wheels cars is something our son used to like to do, or Mm -hmm. maybe he's, you know, uh, carrying around a a spoon. Who knows, right? Whatever it is, um, instead of saying, I need you to put that down and come over here and play with this toy that I want to use to teach you, it's much more uh, appropriate to engage with the child in whatever is currently holding their interest. Yeah, that makes sense to me because
0: it's almost like you're trying to force them to stop something and then force them to do something that they have no interest in.
1: That's exactly right. And the great thing about using this naturalistic uh, teaching approach is that you don't have to worry about generalization, because see, this is the the, context. Yeah. The biggest issue I have with traditional therapy approaches is, um, the therapist and the child work together Mm -hmm. and the child does it with a certain degree of accuracy. And then the parent says, Oh, well, he doesn't do it for me at home right? So that's the big issue is, oh, well, I can get him to do it. Well, I'm a skilled professional and I use specific strategies and cues and I have success, but it's then you have to teach generalization. So I prefer to use naturalistic teaching opportunities Mm -hmm. that occur during daily routines, activities, and interactions. And so I'm there to help parents understand that every interaction with the child is a a teachable moment, if you will, right? So we want to teach imitation in the context of whatever the child is doing. So it's child-led play mm-hmm. and imitating what the child is doing. It's called contingent imitation. Child does something, I imitate what they do, and then they do it again, and I imitate them again. And now it's almost like we have this turn-taking thing going on, but it's contingent on mm-hmm. what they do, not me expecting the child to imitate me first, right? So it's and kind of the opposite. you're getting
0: some your joint attention, joint yeah, interaction. Yeah. The greatest
1: thing about working on nonverbal imitation skills through child-led play is it naturally encourages joint attention, Mm -hmm. okay, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So the second uh, strategy, and there's a whole bunch, there's pages of strategies on each of these foundation skills, is to be accepting of the child's limited interest in traditional toys. Uh, I think it's so important to recognize that much of the time, autistic children aren't very interested in store-bought toys. Their interests are often in things Or they may different. not
0: be playing with them in a traditional sense.
1: Exactly, exactly. So it's better to use whatever the child is interested in, okay, mm-hmm. instead of, again, trying to get them to play with toys and then imitate your actions uh, during playtime. So that is a nonverbal imitation. The second uh, foundation skill that is... Uh, an, part of the Learning to Learn program is joint attention. And joint attention gets a bad rap. Uh, A lot of times people, um, what we hear a lot on social media is that um, we shouldn't be working on joint attention with autistic children. You've got to understand that joint attention doesn't mean eye contact. When mm-hmm. I talk about joint attention, joint right. attention in autistic children is not going to look like joint attention in neurotypical children. So, when we're talking about joint attention, we are not going to demand eye contact. We're not going to say things like, look at me or eyes on me. Right. We're not going to use any kind of whole body listening nonsense. We're not going to do any of that. Okay. How do you know if a child, um, or, you know, you can tell through that interaction if the child is a attending to the if you and the child are, are jointly attending to something um, what what you'll find is autistic children often initiate a bid for joint attention in other ways than using eye contact right, right? they may walk by and bump into you you mm-hmm. know they may um, drop a toy near you now they may walk off but just dropping that that toy one of their favorite toys may be a way that they're bidding right. um, for your yeah. attention right they may just come and stand by you they may walk by you and squeal in the highest pitch voice ever right. but that may be their way of saying, you you and I have this thing going on here, right? So it's about respecting um, their form of communication, their mm-hmm. way of bidding for joint attention, uh, and understanding that it's never going to mirror the way neurotypical children So.
0: Could you call it engagement? They, yeah, they, they want I think, engagement. Yeah,
1: I think that term joint attention. Just everybody yeah. thinks we're talking about eye contact, right? right? And I am very clear in this program that well, this is not about about eye contact. In fact, um, I talk a lot in this program about. Um, even reducing how much language you use. And uh-huh. I talk about how if you're gonna focus on language at all, focus on nonverbal language skills of uh, things like smiling and reaching and giving and mm-hmm. showing and pointing and and just kind of engaging with the child without always trying to quiz them or right. narrate what's going on. Think about what our son Aaron, gosh, one of his first kind of wrote phrases, um, you know, is probably something I don't know, he probably heard it on some show or something, but he would tell us to stop singing, right. stop singing. And then he would start putting his hands over his ears. And we found that if we used fewer words mm-hmm. um, in general when talking, he didn't put his hands over his ears as much. And he's, yeah. to this day, he prefers less language in yep. general.
0: Yeah. And I think that one of his ways of engaging with us is he would ask you, are you okay? Are you
1: okay? Yep. Yep. Are you
0: Okay. And he still does that to this day, just in different ways. Yeah, yeah. You know, And I think he's very thoughtful, um, and people pick up on that. They it's do. It's, it's really cool, but... Um. yeah, so yeah. they just, he, he wanted to engage. He did. And he wanted how... to
1: initiate. So he would bid for our joint attention 150 times a day by saying, are you okay?
0: Mm-hmm. Are you
1: okay? And I'd say, right. yeah, I'm okay, buddy. Are you okay? And he would just kind of, I don't even know yep. that he would respond to that. But that was his way of letting us know, I see you. I right. want to be with right. you. I care about you. I want to engage with you right now. Right. You know, so kind of, kind of interesting. The other strategy under joint attention, uh, the second one that I'll mention here is, to use more declarative language to um uh, just make comments about um what's happening in the environment because Mm -hmm. what that allows us to do is it invites the child to visually reference what is happening in their environment we know full well that aaron often as especially as a young child didn't really know what was going on in our house like remember when we first got our dog i'm not even sure remember we got emma i'm not sure he really even knew we had a dog for a long time because he did not really pay attention. I mean, I'm sure he did know she was there, but he certainly didn't acknowledge her.
0: No, he not at the beginning. Her. No, no
1: it, took, it took quite some time. So um, like if we were, you know, if you're walking with a child and you're at the park or in the backyard, you might just say something like, oh, look, um, you know, whoever it is, Whitney's swinging. So it's just making a comment to hopefully draw his attention toward what is happening in the world around him. It's very hard to learn and develop new skills if you're a toddler and you're not Noticing or visually referencing—that's the technical term—visually referencing what is happening in the world around you. So, part of the of, of establishing joint attention is increasing awareness of the environment, right? Right. So important. Okay. The third uh, learning to learn uh, foundation skill that I address in my autism program is really about sensory processing and helping uh, children to be in a ready state for learning. Right? right. It is such. Gosh, we could talk for hours about Aaron's. Sensory Differences and how, gosh, there were certain things that were traumatizing to him. Sure. I mean, yeah. I remember, you know, before we even had anybody even mentioned the word autism. It was, he was maybe a year old, maybe not even quite a year old. I remember we went to see my family in Kansas and we stopped in some little town at a, at a restaurant. It was a brand new, I mean, obviously one we'd never been to. And do you remember how upset he was? And we would go into the restaurant and he would have blood curdling screams. So I would take him outside. And the minute we stepped outside, he, he was, was fine. Yeah. And then I thought he was calm and I'd walk back in there. So there was something about that environment that just made his, He did not feel right in his own skin. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it was, it was very traumatic for him.
0: Yep, um, I remember so, that too.
1: Yeah, I remember that very vividly. So when we talk about sensory processing, um, I, I think one of the strategies is that's so important is to offer multi-sensory experiences. Uh, we live in a media manic world where there is a lot of you know time spent uh, on screens and we know that autistic children, I mean, our son has learned a lot from certain shows. Is that
0: a term, media manic?
1: Media manic world. I don't know what's a term I use because we do live in a media manic I, world. I think
0: it's appropriate.
1: Yeah, we do live in a media manic world. And um, like Magic School Bus is something Mm -hmm. that I know Aaron watches those over and over. I don't know that he does anymore, but he can tell you more about the digestive system than I could ever (laughs) think to tell you. So um, being able to watch educational shows over and over. you know, I mean, there's plenty of benefits for um, autistic children, um, uh, especially if they're educational. But even with screen time, children all children still need play-based movement, right? Mm-hmm. They need varied experiences. So even in our medium manic world, it's really important that we are offering multi-sensory experiences. Okay. So I have a whole three hour course on sensory, gosh, we could talk about sensory, um, uh, all day long, but it is, uh, this chapter three on sensory processing is very detailed and has a lot of case studies and examples of how to support children and their sensory differences. Awesome. The fourth foundation skill is play and just so you know autistic play is never going to look like neurotypical play but autistic play isn't wrong so one of my favorite sayings is autistic play is authentic play right and I think it's so important that we acknowledge um that um the way autistic children play uh, we need to sit back and observe skillfully observe it and try to understand what is bringing them so much joy about it Mm -hmm. right not change it and not make them play in typically developing ways um so a couple of strategies i'll just mention is play with things that are relevant and meaningful to the child so don't try to remove highly preferred items in an attempt to coerce the child to play with you know some idea that you have like "Ooh, i thought we'd do play today well mm-hmm. if he's not interested in play all you're going to do is create behaviors you know so it's right. better to um go with the flow go with know? the flow especially with toddlers and very young children which right?
0: i which i know is hard because a lot of people like to plan out they right. in the, and they have certain things attached to certain you know yeah. strategies or whatever attached to Whatever they want to do in that in that time.
1: Well, that's why as pediatric SLPs, we love toys so much because we're like, ooh, if you asked me about Potato Head, I could probably give you at least ten or twelve different skills that I would address with Potato Head. So if you have a child who isn't interested in Potato Head, then we're like, oh crap, right? right. How am I going to work on this? So well,
0: don't you also think that you know those those are your go tos or your sure. wheel, your wheelhouse? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna hit on those things that you really. Are comfortable with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so maybe when you go with the flow you're outside of your comfort Ooh, zone just a little bit i think you, you nailed know. it i
1: so. think you nailed it um, I think that in general, we all like to know the plan, right? right Even right. as professionals, as adults. So um, people think, oh, you get to play with kids all day at your job. Well, we don't just play. We play with a purpose, right? We do as, as as providers. But it's basically learning a new skill, which is child-led play, which we are not taught. At least I wasn't in grad school. I was taught that this is adult-directed, that you have a plan in place. So the second strategy, you would have thought Jim and I talked about this ahead of time, but um, uh, the second strategy I was going to mention about play is to Follow the child's lead and leave your agenda. Behind.
0: Oh, wow. And it
1: actually says, avoid I having... I feel really good about I that I know. <laughs> I'm impressed. Avoid having a play plan already in place. Make playtime relevant and meaningful to, to, to the child. So, yeah, I just can not believe you brought that up. That's amazing. Yes. And then the fifth foundation skill is the big one if you're an SLP, and this is early language development. And so this does not focus on speech, per mm-hmm. se. This is language, right? So okay. one of my favorite sayings is, you know, language trumps speech all day long. Speech is one way to communicate but we need to be very comfortable with multimodal communication uh you and i i mean every human being on the planet uses multimodal communication i mean you think about all the ways ways we communicate today with texting and emailing mm-hmm. and we use emojis and is it gif or jif gif whatever i still don't know what the right way but you know think of all the ways we there's communicate.
0: a debate on
1: that yeah see and i don't yeah. even know but we communicate in a myriad of ways we always have mm-hmm. you know, i'm a big I use my hands. Like right now, I'm just looking at Jim, and I'm using my hands. And he's probably like, you don't have to be so demonstrative when you're talking to me. But (laughs) it's just second nature to me. Sign language is a formal language that is different from, obviously, speech, right? Right. So um, it's just important to recognize that we should be focusing on multimodal communication. So we introduce AAC, augmentative and Alternative Communication, immediately. It's no longer considered a um, last resort. When, I will say, when Aaron was very young, it was... Still, the mindset of a lot of us, I think, that you know, you kind of give them till they're seven or eight years old, and then if they're not talking, then we might think about Mm -hmm. AAC. Oh boy, we now know that's completely wrong, right? That we should start. Immediately when they're when they're very, very young. So uh, AAC um, starting that is is going to be an appropriate uh, uh, goal to work on early on. And the second uh, strategy and then we'll wrap things up is to really embrace a facilitative interaction style instead of a directive style. It is so common for parents and SLPs alike to use a directive style. So that would be where you put a lot of pressure on the child to respond. Okay. So you're yeah. giving a lot of, you're asking a lot of questions. What color is it? How many are there? What shape is it? What does a dog say? What does a cow say? Right. So it's Jim's like forgetting. <laughs> It's like, I
0: feel you made, very direct. You made me nervous there. <laughs> exactly, like, it does. Wow.
1: So one of my strategies is life is not a quiz, right? We don't have to yeah. ask test-like yeah. questions all day long. The other thing well-meaning adults often do is tell children to say words. Say mm. ball. Come on, buddy, you can do it. Use your words. Come on, put your lips together. Ball, 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 you know. <laughs> so again, it's very directive. And unfortunately, when we use a directive uh, interaction style, uh i will say not even just autistic children but children in general they sense that stress they sense that stress yeah you do right (laughs) and i mean hopefully you know we're not we're not quite that forceful when we're interacting with kids but it is stressful yeah and stress you're exaggerating
0: just a little bit just
1: a and i never exaggerate right no no um but we we need to understand that when we're talking about the nervous system that stress impedes learning Mm -hmm. and the main goal Really, when you're when you're supporting autistic children, the main goal is to focus on connection over instruction. Okay. Okay. We want, because yeah. um, here's something really amazing and beautiful that happens. When interacting with you becomes a preferred activity for the child, mm-hmm. joint attention will naturally improve. Oh, yeah. But when the child feels as though this interaction is being forced, when they feel a mm-hmm. lot of pressure, when they feel like they're given a task and they are either going to be right or wrong Mm -hmm. then what happens is they often start to go into fight or flight okay that 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 it's a stress response that's what fight or flight is it's a stress response Mm -hmm. so that's where we start seeing providers and you know or or, you know document or or parents um report that he avoids interacting
0: with me Mm -hmm. he
1: turns and goes the other way when i walk when i come and sit down and try to play with him he gets up and leaves
0: well i think it's that's a natural reaction I mean, I can remember a professor in college that I never wanted to call on me ever
1: mm-hmm. Cause because it was really stressful, right? Oh my
0: gosh! Because if I said the wrong word mm-hmm. or got it just a little bit wrong, he would destroy you right. in front of three hundred people. You know and who and enjoys that? No,
1: <laughs> and 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 being made to feel small um, doesn't ever make you want to try harder does it? I mean no. it makes you want to avoid it makes yeah, you want to run like, the other just way hide. right right. so it's the same thing with children so mm-hmm. anyways those are the five foundation skills uh, it is a full program and I just thought gosh darn it it's my podcast I can talk about my autism program yeah, so I thought absolutely. I would just just share that with you guys so if you are interested in the program you can learn more about it by going to my website uh, com. it is called the Learn learning to learn program so thanks for listening to another episode of slp talk show if you're enjoying the podcast we would really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review let us know how we're doing as you head back to the real world take time to reflect on the blessings in your life remember to practice kindness and acceptance and please get a mammogram and get those girls checked every year, all right? Early detection can save your life. It certainly saved mine. I am a 10 year breast cancer survivor. So, woo-hoo. woohoo, woohoo. Until we meet again, cheers.